Welcome to Learn Me Right with Dr. Eliana Close. Thank you so much, Ellie, for being on the podcast. It's so great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about your role at QUT? So I'm a senior research fellow here at QUT, and I'm currently on a project led by Professor Ben White um, called Enhancing End-of-Life Decision-Making Optimal Regulation of Voluntary Assisted Dying. So as part of that, I'm leading a Canadian case study trying to understand how decisions about assisted dying are made. I also supervise PhD students, so I'm really proud to say that I am your supervisor, (laughs) as you well know. And I'm very lucky to be your supervisor. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. Before we get into the rest of the podcast, I have some um, rapid fire questions for you. First of all, what are your pronouns? She and her. Excellent. What is your highlight of the year so far? Um, I just got back from England where I was there for my university reunion. So it was a 20 year reunion and I got to catch up with old friends and it was just amazing to be over there and traveling again. Oh, this just sounds so amazing. <laughs> um, what is your coffee order? Um, well, at the moment it's a piccolo, but that's because uh, as I'm getting older, I'm really sensitive to caffeine. My preferred <laughs> coffee order is a magic, which is apparently from Melbourne and is a double ristretto with just a little bit of milk on it. I am learning more about coffee. I think this should be Learn Me Right in coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the first time we've had that coffee order, so that's very exciting. Mm, thank you. And finally, if you had to do karaoke, what would you sing? Um, I love karaoke, but I am a terrible singer, so I am a real real fan of the rock power ballad that everyone, you know, starts to belt out. So I think maybe if I were being true to my Canadian roots, I would um, pick a Celine Dion song. Uh, Maybe it's all coming back to me now because it's completely ridiculous and people often join in and sing along. I was really hoping that you'd say, um, Justin Bieber, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're an Avril Lavigne tragic. (laughs) Tell me about it. That is amazing. Thank you. And hopefully we might get to hear that and join in at the ABLE conference later this year. (laughs) We can always hope. (laughs) So in terms of our first substantive question today, can you tell us a little bit about your current research interest or area in end of life law and, and VAD? Sure, yeah. So I guess I'm here to talk to you today about one part of my research, which is on institutional objection to VAD. Um, And an institutional objection occurs when a healthcare facility like a hospital or residential aged care facility or a hospice um, refuses to provide a legal service on the basis of its values. So classic example is a faith-based institution that won't provide access to VAD because that conflicts with their tenants um, of their faith not to hasten death. Um, But I think it's also important to recognize this also occurs in secular contexts. So some secular hospices, for example, also refuse to provide VAD on site. Um, Now, I have a question about that. Is that legal? (laughs) That's a great question, Sinead. Um, Maybe too we could start with the ethics of that, because <laughs> the legal position really varies by jurisdiction. Okay. So there is lots of ethical debate, and I know yeah. you, you love ethics, um, about whether institutional objection should be permitted and on what basis. So um, some people say, look, an institution can't have a conscience. It's not like individual conscientious objection. These, mm. these are um, bricks and mortar buildings made up of a collection of individuals. Um, other people would say, um, Uh, you know, that it's an issue of self-governance and institutions should be allowed to do whatever they want. Converse of that is that, look, these institutions get public funding, so they should be providing legal health services on site. Um, So I think there is a lot of ethical debate, and that's important to recognize. But the legal position really does vary depending on, on where you are. 
In terms of Queensland, since we're based here, would you mind giving us a little bit of an overview and then perhaps talking about how that differs from Canada? Because um, I know that you've done a lot of research into the Canadian position. Yeah, yeah. So Queensland, um, maybe a, I should first contrast Queensland with Victoria, which was the first state to, to legalize VAD. So Victoria didn't address this issue in its legislation. Um, and instead has a policy document that says that institutions that don't want to participate should actually develop a process for responding to requests for VAD um, and, and put, you know, a patient-centered approach on their process, but it's quite a loose form of regulation. Um, so then when the Queensland law was passed, um, we advocated strongly with some research that it should be addressed in the law to provide more certainty for patients and families who are trying to navigate these objections. Um, so the Queensland law has provisions that govern what institutions can and cannot do in certain circumstances. Um, if an institution wants to transfer a patient out for VAD, whether they, or not they can do that depends on whether the patient is a permanent resident and also depends to some extent on, on the amount of harm or suffering it might cause that person. So I know that, um... Uh, objections, conscientious objection applies to a number of health services, like we've got abortion and a number of other things. What is it about the uniqueness of um, voluntary assisted dying in the context of objection that makes it particularly tricky to deal with? Look, I think um, one tricky aspect of the dying context is that patients are by definition suffering and they're terminally ill. So. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think definitely psychological suffering and pain and harms can result in those other contexts, abortion and, and contraception, for example. But but in the voluntary assisted dying context, particularly in Australia, where a person's prognosis needs to be within six or 12 months, depending on their condition and depending on the jurisdiction, um, you know, they're by definition experiencing intolerable suffering. And so these types of institutional objections can just compound that suffering. Mm -hmm. Question. That actually leads really well to sort of the next part of our, our, our questions. So in terms of the research, I know that you've led research in Canada and also been involved in research in Victoria about the impacts of objections on people involved, including patients and families and um, practitioners and how the sort of landscape has changed over time. Would you mind telling us a bit about your research findings? Sure. Um, so we interviewed, and Ruthie, you were involved in this research <laughs> as well, so I should acknowledge that off the bat. Um, we interviewed in uh, Victoria, Ruthie and our colleague Ben White interviewed family caregivers primarily of persons who had accessed VAD. Um, and in Canada, we interviewed also doctors and nurse practitioners that provide medical assistance in dying or MAID as it's called, as well as family caregivers. Ruthie, you were involved in those interviews and care coordinators that were involved in providing care. And a number of participants discussed experiences of institutional objection. Um, the biggest harm and concern by far was um, forced transfers. So transfers out of a facility to either be assessed for VAD or to receive it. Um, and uh, this caused a range of concerns. In addition to compounding suffering, it caused emotional stress, it caused a loss of dignity, um, and there was a sense of reduced choice. Sometimes it actually meant that the person didn't get their choice of VAD or made. Um, so there were all these harms that we found that resulted in the research. Um, in Canada in particular, though, we did see that things changed over time. Um, MAID has been legal federally in Canada since 2016, and there were a number of catalysts that precipitated those changes. So those included 
things like patients sharing their negative experiences. And Ruthie, um, you know, maybe you want to chime in here about your PhD and how that, that contributes here. So the very fact that patients shared their stories actually meant institutions started to open up a bit more and start to allow assessments on site. Um, other catalysts for change were people getting around the table and having negotiations between institutions, faith leaders, um, government representatives, and others to talk openly about it and try to come up with solutions. There's also examples of government action. So in Nova Scotia, the government came down and said, look, actually, we're such a small center. Um, institutional objections can shut down access to this for a wide range of people. Um, so, so, you know, you actually have to find a way to provide it on site. So the one Catholic facility there, St. Martha's, actually has um, a separate part of the hospital that does allow for the provision of made on site. Um, so there were, were an, I guess, a range of catalysts, um, all the way from individual grassroots, you know, sharing your story up to regulatory action, government action that helped um, lead to change and improve um, this for patients and families. So with, um, with objection, we have like, we have two different ethical perspectives coming to play we have like freedom or like the right to access healthcare, especially legal legally valid healthcare, and then you have on the other side of the fence like freedom of religion uh, freedom of like um moral choice and um consciousness and those sorts of things so there is like and they at the at the extreme end of that at the absolute absolute end of that they completely conflict they are mutually incompatible however it sort of sounds like there are actually so many different ways to compromise and this depends on like the the region the remoteness area like the size of the territory so perhaps nova scotia might be similar to like the act or um like healthcare options out in wa um so could you speak to a little more of like some of the potentially ideal compromises that you have found in your research yeah so look i think um we wrote a paper that Ben White led with um, Lindy Wilmot, myself and Jocelyn Downey that outlined the different regulatory responses you could take. So I guess there's a spectrum of responses. One is that a regulatory system or a government could just say, no, we're not allowing this. We're, we're passing law or we're um, renegotiating agreements with institutions that says, look, you cannot refuse to provide legal these legal health services at your facility. And that's one extreme. The other extreme is, look, we'll just let institutions decide what, what they want to do and kind of leave it up um, to the individual institutions and as we've already talked about that causes problems for patients and then in the middle you've got this model of reasonable accommodation so you can have different different solutions to govern it um, so the queensland model that we talked about as well is one example of this where you can say look in the instances when it would cause the most harm for instance, when it's a person's home, when it's a residential aged care facility, we're not really going to allow you to transfer out mm. um, unless it's really not going to impact the person. So that's sort of one one model. A near universal feature of state VAD laws are provisions that allow individuals to conscientiously object. And that's mm -hmm. uncontroversial. Yeah. We, you know, as a society really yeah. believe that individuals should be able to choose whether or not to participate in this. But yeah. what makes an institution different is that, especially in some geographic regions, if an institution refuses to participate, then that can effectively wipe out access to this service for a whole range of people mm -hmm. that are living in that region. It's not always the case, right? This is yeah. more maybe true in rural areas, regional areas. Um, so I think it is important to, to see that distinction between inst individual conscientious objection and institutional conscientious objection. Can I add to that? And, uh, I have another question now. Um, it's it's on the, on the lines of the fact that I'm not 
I'm not a clinician. I've never been employed in a, like a health facility. Are uh, is like faith based requirements a part of the criteria for being employed at a, like a faith based institution? Like, does everyone at that institution object themselves? Are they being prevented from providing a service that they would actually advocate for? That's a really good question, and I think it depends on the institution. So I think there are some institutions that would require employees to uphold their values. Um, so if they were a permanent employee of that facility and they might have an appointment elsewhere, that institution might ask them to not participate in that. Um, whether again that's legal is probably beyond my knowledge of you know employment law. But um, I know in Canada there are faith-based or faith-influenced facilities that um, would say to their staff, look, on site, you need to abide by our institutional values. But if you have a cross appointment at the public hospital down the road that is a secular public hospital, we have no issue with you providing made at that hospital down the road. So it really value, um, varies rather by institution. And I, I think the research that you led, Ellie, draws that out a little bit as well, because what, I think one of the findings, if I'm remembering this correctly, is that people did perceive that it wasn't everybody in the facility that objected. It might be just somebody on the board, perhaps, or somebody in a senior position, um, and that there were very varied views within the institution about that. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I think yeah. it points to the fact that people can, we're, you know, people are complex, so people can identify with a particular faith, or have a particular value set, but maybe you know don't have a problem with certain aspects mm. of it, or don't ascribe as um, faithfully to certain parts of that faith as mm. than others. You know, so I think these are complex issues. I think institutions that hold these values deeply hold them, and they're you know seeking to uphold um, those values within their facility. There's also issues around. You know, if you're being funded by a big um, faith-based entity, you need to uphold those values to ensure that that funding stream continues. And so we saw that in the research too, where we saw, you know, there were negotiations with boards around, like, what are they willing to allow um, on site? Like, are they are willing to allow assessments? Because that's just a conversation mm -hmm. and not pull the funding and that kind of thing. So, so it does get quite complex when you get into the weeds mm -hmm. on it. Um, I remember I was going through the parliamentary debates in Australia. I forget, I do forget whether it was like Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia or Tasmania. And I do remember there was one um, parliamentarian or minister who got up um, after someone, a faith-based minister had got up and said, you know, it's my faith-based belief that we should not have that. And someone um, got up next and was like, well, actually, I'm of the same faith, but I believe that we should, you know, like we should not, we should be doing our job to help people who are suffering. So it's so interesting to draw out that nuance that just because you belong to a particular faith-based institution does not mean that like that faith-based institution has a set of one principles that everyone like, uniformly believes in. Mm. So it would be very interesting to see how they deal with that, um, like projecting out a universal belief when in fact, potentially that's not the case. True, true. And I think there's there is research in, in Canada and elsewhere that points to the fact that um, in any institution that has an institutional objection, you need processes around responding to VAD requests. And we would argue those processes should be clear and transparent. Mm -hmm. um, but if you if you say are a person that really ascribes to that institutional value and really objects to VAD, you have an interest in 
protecting your conscientious objection mm. and not being part of that process. So you need a process so that person can exercise their individual conscientious mm. objection. But likewise, if you're a person that actually maybe supports this, you might feel distressed by seeing a person facing the, the prospect of a forced transfer, especially if that person is suffering greatly. So, you know, the institution also has an interest in protecting that staff member from psychological harm or moral distress that might arise from the transfer. Mm -hmm. So again, this really just points to having um, processes and, and policy around this so that people can navigate it both inside and outside the institution. Mm -hmm. um, we would also argue though that sometimes policy is not enough. Um, I led a study of policies in Victoria that found, look, the publicly facing policies on this issue aren't clear and they're not that transparent and they don't allow patients to have enough information to know, okay, what do I do if I want that in this area? Mm. Um, so we would say actually in Australia, for instance, law is a better mechanism than policy for governing this kind of issue because it provides clarity and certainty about the respective rights of institutions and individuals and who wins out when there's a conflict. Mm. There are so many different steps by which practitioners can be involved in VAT. It's not just like a one box, and I'm very aware of this, that there are many steps along the way. So there are many opportunities for compromise along each step of that VAT process. And it seems like we could use some legislative reform to address literally every single step of the way by which people can both object or be involved. So I think that sort of leads into the last question, though. Would you like to ask that one? Sure, thank you. <laughs> so I suppose that there are, there are kind of two prongs to this question and you've touched on both of them already. One is that what people can do to maybe help in this area. And you mentioned that patients and families have actually shaped change already and there's some evidence of that. And then the other part is what do people know? And you mentioned that some of the policies aren't that clear. So I guess, I know that's a big question, but um, can you talk to each of those things just a little bit more? Sure, sure. Um, so I, I agree. I think it's really important to have clarity and certainty around this. And one big part of that is that people's experiences and voices are amplified and heard. And Ruthie, your work is tremendous in terms of um, doing work around this and, and really seeing what's going on there. Um, I think another part of clarity and certainty is to have law or regulation that requires institutions to publicize their policies. So we do have examples um, where you know the law says that the institution has to have a publicly available policy. That's really important. Um, and the policy can't just be, look, we object to VAD, but the policy has to say, look, if you're interested in VAD, here's the person that you ask about it. Here's where you go and that sort of thing. Um, again, in Australia, I think clarity and certainty can come from laws in each state. So again, Queensland is a great example of that. Um, I think too, you know, in terms of learning from individuals, um, we really have to think carefully about hearing a variety of perspectives on this. There isn't one solution, but where an institution is publicly funded, I think it is quite hard to defend that that can't happen at all on site. Mm -hmm. So I think looking forward, we may see um, things like there's litigation that's planned in Canada and, and other mechanisms to try to, to try to get on top of this a little bit more. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. And I think you've done a really good job of um, listening to both sides of the fence and trying to find a mediated, balanced response. And I, I have a lot of respect for that. Thanks so much. Thanks <laughs> for um, your interest. And it's been great to be here. Thanks, Ellie. And thank you to our listeners. <laughs>